Well, good morning, friends and family, and welcome to The Digs Petri Dish, where COVID runs rampant. And since we didn't want to share this gift with you, we decided to pre-record the lesson. And the way we're doing this actually is because Sean Alex is outside my front door, safe distance, on an iPad, helping coordinate this. So, Sean Alex, thank you. And would everyone just give him a big thank you? Yeah, just a, appreciate it, buddy. Or maybe if you don't want to listen to me, you can say, boo, Sean Alex. It's all up to you. But again, appreciate it, my friend. Well, today we're in week three of the Bible for Everyone because we believe that this gift is not just for the preachers, the priests, the pastors, or all the professional Christians, but God's book, God's gift is to each of us. And so week one, we answer the question, how did we even get this Bible? Go back and watch that lesson. And then last week we looked at, well, what is the big story of the Bible? That God is in the process of creating something and we get to be a part of it. So for this week and next, we're going to look at how do you study the Bible? And next week is going to be the main focus, how do you study it? We're going to get into some very practical tools for all people. If you're a beginner, come next week. If you've been in the Bible for 50 years, come next week. In fact, especially if you are a lifelong Bible student, you need to be here because we're gonna hit some pro tools and pro tips, some that you may be employing in your Bible study, but some you may not, which may be why you're missing out on some of what God wants to show you in Scripture. So next week's gonna be awesome. I want you to be here. But today, before we talk about what to do in reading the Bible, today we're gonna to talk about how not to read the Bible, because after all, there's a million different ways to mess up any sort of conversation, isn't there? Come on, when was the last time maybe you had a conversation with your spouse and it did not end up the way you thought it would end? You entered into it with high hopes and you left deflated or running from flying knives. Okay, if that's happening, we need to help you with your marriage, but you get what I'm saying. Isn't it interesting that often we expect one thing but get something else? And a lot of times the reason we do not get what we want from a conversation or we don't get what we want from a reading, or we don't get what we want when we come into the Word of God is because we're doing certain things out of order or we're entering into it with the wrong attitude. And so here's the big idea for today. You'll see this on the screen. The big idea is simply this. How we go into the Bible determines what we bring out of the Bible. Let me say that again. How we enter the Bible or go into the Scripture or read the Scripture, the attitude we bring into the Scripture reading determines what we bring out from the Bible. There are six common ways to enter the Scriptures, six attitudes, if you will. Five of these don't help. One of them does. Let me give them to you. These are common ways to read the Bible. Number one is we enter it with an attitude of obligation. The second one is the attitude of information. The third is affirmation. The fourth is argumentation. The fifth is refutation. And finally, six is transformation. Let me walk, these, walk you through these very briefly. The first one, obligation, is simply saying, I should read the Bible. It's not a desire, it's an obligation. And often an I should attitude leads us into the text. We don't see anything and we come out reaffirming that this is not something I want to spend my time doing. So obligation. The second one, information, is where we say, that's neat. It's sort of like you go to a museum and you see all these pieces of art on the walls. And you're like, oh, that's neat. That's neat. Did you see this one? And you see the texture and the painting. Maybe you even appreciate the detail. But you go into the museum and you leave the museum without taking anything with you. 
Now we call that theft if you do in a museum, but in scripture we call that a productive Bible study. So some people come in with obligation, others with just seeking out information. By the way, you may know this to be you if you're always saying, I just want to go deeper, or I just need more meat, or I need someone else to teach me. Because that's the kind of attitude often that's, I just need more information. The third bad way to read the scripture is affirmation. Meaning we enter into the scripture with this attitude, I'm right. And we go into the Bible looking to prove what we already think or already believe to be correct. That's affirmation. Now some of us don't go in looking to see that I'm right. We go for the next one, which is argumentation, which says, I'm looking in the scriptures to see how you're wrong. Not just I'm right, but you're wrong. And this is the attitude where we often will proof text or we'll pick and choose, or we will simply look for hammer verses. You know what a hammer verse is, right? It's a verse that you use to hit someone over the head like a hammer. And then the fifth one is not affirmation or argumentation, I'm right, you're wrong. It's rather refutation. It's to refute something in the scriptures, to argue against it. In other words, refutation says God's wrong. And by the way, these are, this is the attitude by the new atheist, Sam Harris, uh, the late Christopher Hitchens, I think about uh, Bart Ehrman and others who go to the scripture and they know the word of God, but they go into it to prove God is wrong. Now, by the way, quick confession, I have at least at some point in my life entered scripture with at least four of these five attitudes. Obligation, oh, I need to, I don't really want to, or information, that's interesting. Just, just wow me with something new and true. Or maybe it's affirmation, I need to know that I'm right. Or argumentation, I'm gonna find out how someone else is wrong. And I want you to understand, this is common. Don't beat yourself up if you've entered the scripture that way. But none of those will reveal to you the treasure of God in the scriptures like the sixth way, the sixth attitude, which is transformation, which is simply, I'll change. I will change. We enter the scripture recognizing what the prophet Isaiah said is true, that God's thoughts are higher than ours. God's ways are higher than ours. So we should expect if he is bigger than us, smarter than us, then there will be things in the text that we do not already do, think, or say because we are smaller than, we're not as wise as, and we have been tainted by sin, so our ability to reason is twisted. But transformation says God knows what is best. So I'm gonna enter the text, listening, open to him. It's the attitude of the disciples when Jesus said, follow me, they left what they had and they followed him. Now, we're not the first to struggle with this idea of how do you struggle, or how do you study the Bible and how not to study the Bible? In fact, this is a, an issue that has been around for centuries. There were two groups in Jesus' day who knew the scriptures but struggled like you and me to go in with the right attitude and they often missed the gift of God because of it. Those two groups were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So everyone say Pharisee and everyone say Sadducee. I hope you said it. I don't know if you did, but I assume you did. The Pharisees, we've all heard about them because they were the religious leaders of the day. But what many of us don't know is the Sadducees were also religious leaders. Here's a little chart to compare the two and so you know about them. The Pharisees and Sadducees were both religious leaders and they both knew the Bible very, very well. 
But here's where some of their differences lie. And the fact that they didn't like each other is because of these. Number one, the Pharisees influ had influence over the synagogue system. That's like the churches in the Jewish culture. But the Sadducees had influence over the temple. That was the big place where everyone came to worship. In fact, they were rich in part because they ran the temple, which sold animals. You remember the story where Jesus knocked over the money changers in the temple? Well, those belonged to or were controlled by the Sadducees. So you have some who were controlling the synagogues, other the temple. The Pharisees wanted status among the Jews, the blue-collar worker folk. That's who they wanted influence and status over. The Sadducees, they wanted influence and status with the Romans. The Pharisees added to the scriptures. They came up with 613 extra laws. And here's why. They read the scripture. For instance, the Ten Commandments, there's one that says, keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't do any work. Don't do these things on the Sabbath. And they said, well, what does work entail? Is work simply buying and selling something? Or is work going out to your garden? Or is work tilling the ground? What is work? And so they came up with all these rules, including things like for Sabbath day, you could not carry your mat, like your sleeping bag, more than a certain distance because then it would be considered work. So they added to Scripture. But the Sadducees, they didn't add to Scripture. Rather, they removed things from the Scriptures. They disagreed that there was any afterlife. They didn't believe there was heaven or hell. They didn't believe there were angels or demons. They didn't believe that there were such a things as miracles. So what you have here is socially conservative or socially liberal attitudes when it comes to, to, to the Scriptures. And this is the group, or these are the groups that actually came to Jesus. And because of Jesus, or because of their attitude rather, they were rebuked by Jesus. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because of their traditionalism. If you want to see this, go to Matthew chapter 15, verse 1 through 3. And Jesus rebukes the Sadducees for their mishandling of Scripture, picking and choosing what they want and don't want. And you can see that in Matthew 22, verse 29. Now, I want to show you a story or one moment where both groups took turns trying to trick and trap Jesus because they knew the Scriptures and they came to Jesus, the living Word of God. They had an opportunity to be transformed, but because they entered the conversation with a particular attitude, they left the conversation missing what God would have of them. So this is the story as it's recorded in Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. And this is going to be the first group that we see. It's the Pharisees. It says, the teachers of the law, that refers to the Pharisees, by the way, and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him. Well, the him there is talking about Jesus. He had just told a parable or a story where the Pharisees were the villains, and they didn't like that. So they're looking for a way to arrest Jesus because they knew he had just spoken this parable or story against them. But they were afraid of the people. Remember, the Pharisees want status with the Jews, so they will not do anything against Jesus that might get them in trouble with all the people. Hope that helps the context. And the reason they didn't like Jesus, this is very important, is because Jesus threatened their status, their position, their preferences. And because he challenged those things Instead of saying, I'll change, they said, we've got to get rid of Jesus. And so here's the story. Verse 20, keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. See, they came in with the wrong attitude. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power 
and authority of the governor. In other words, they didn't have the right to execute Jesus, but they wanted to come up with something that they could give to the governor of Rome so that he could execute Jesus. Verse 21, so the spies questioned him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Oh man, you could just see them taking their halos, kind of cleaning them like, oh, we see that you're good. They're buttering him up, right? But their heart is far from God. So verse 22, they ask him this, is it right then, Jesus, for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now here's why this was a trap. The coins given to Caesar had Caesar's face on them, and it was often considered idolatry to have the face of anyone who proclaimed to be God emboldened or emblazoned on something. And so they asked him, hey, God is our God. Caesar's not our God. Is it okay for us to pay Caesar? And so this is what Jesus says. It says he saw through their duplicity. He saw what was in their heart, not simply what was in their mouth. See, Jesus knows when we enter the scriptures, when we come to the word of God, the Lord of scripture sees our hearts. And I believe he responds to our hearts and reveals to us truth and helps us understand, often based on how willing we are to enter willingly to be transformed. And so he says this, and Jesus said to them, show me a denarius, that's simply a coin that you would use to pay taxes, whose image and inscription or title are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, and this is so important, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. Now, hold that in mind as we finish the story. They were unable to trap Jesus in what he had said to them and astonished by his answers, they became silent. Again, they come and they can ask the God of the universe anything and they ask him a trick question, but he answers so brilliantly. I love how Jesus answers this. He says, okay, whose picture is this? They said, well, Caesar's. He says, well, if the picture of Caesar is on it, it belongs to Caesar. So give Caesar what belongs to him. That sounds reasonable. And then he says, but give to God gods, or give to God whatever has his image stamped on it. Well, friends, Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 tells us that you and me and all people are made in the image of God. His image is stamped on our very souls. So Jesus is saying, hey, give Caesar his money, but give God you. Come to God willing to say, all that I am, all that I have, I submit to whatever you say to me. In other words, God's heart, God's desire is that we would enter the scriptures saying, transform me, Jesus. I give you all and I will receive whatever teaching, instruction, rebuke, correction, direction that you want to give for you give us life and lead us in paths of life. This is what he's saying. And they go, well, we can't argue with that. So they're silent. So next up, after the Pharisees, this other group, the Sadducees roll up and they say, okay, you can do it. They roll up their sleeves. They say, our turn. And so this is what happens next. We won't read the entire story, but let me give you the flavor of it. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. Remember, they do not believe there is a heaven or hell, no afterlife. They came to Jesus with a question. And their question gets really convoluted, but they're basically asking, hey, how's there going to be marriage in heaven? And of course, they don't believe there is a heaven. 
And Jesus gives this brilliant answer. And because of it, they then, in verse 40, were told, and no one dared ask him any more questions. Now, in some ways, that's a terribly sad verse to me. You have the one who gives truth and life, who can answer the questions of the heart, but because they were afraid of receiving an answer they did not want, they stopped asking questions. They stopped seeking the truth of God in the word of God, Jesus Christ. See, friends, these are two ways. These are attitudes that will prohibit you and me from encountering the living God when we come to Scripture, which is why it's so important before we talk about how to study the Bible and, and know how to uncover what God is speaking and saying, we need to come prepared with attitudes that say, Lord, whatever you say here, I will do. This is the attitude of Samuel where he says, I am listening, Lord. Speak. This is the attitude of the prophet Isaiah who says, here I am, send me whatever you say, I will do it. This is the attitude of the apostles when Jesus said, follow me, lay down your nets, lay down whatever you're carrying, lay down your past, lay down your preference, lay down your fear, lay down all those things and follow me. This is the attitude that we enter the scriptures with. So when you open your word tomorrow morning, you come to it and say, Lord, I don't want to miss your presence in my life. See, Jesus was there. He was physically present, available to the Pharisees and the Sadducees alike, and yet because they were unwilling to enter the conversation with an attitude of transformation, the embodiment of truth and life passed them by. Now, I want to show you a picture, and this has been very helpful for me when it comes to how do we study the scriptures and really how not to. Now, on this chart, you'll see the Bible there is in the middle because the Bible is the Word of God. We believe God inspired others to write down in their own words the truth of God. Now, there are two postures when it comes to Scripture. One posture says, I am above the Scriptures. This is the attitude of the men that we just heard about. In other words, we stand above the authority of Scripture. I am the boss, not you. The other way of reading Scripture is to say that the Bible is above us and we stand under the scriptural authority of God. In other words, you're the boss, we say. So sometimes it's, I'm the boss or you're the boss. It's all about, do we allow the scripture to be over us or do we stand on it? Does this make sense? Now, we talk about this, the vertical side of Bible study as authority, or maybe we use the word theology. How do we view our relationship with God? And in our world, the reason we're talking about that is in our world, most people do not submit or come under the word of God. They do not enter their study for transformation to be changed. They enter it out of obligation or just information or maybe to affirm something they want to affirm or maybe to argue against someone else or maybe it's to refute God. That's standing above Scripture. That's saying, I'm the authority, not you. But transformation, the one that says, I submit to you, God, that's I stand under you. You are above me. You're my master. You're my boss. I am not. Now, that's the authority side. But if you look on this horizontal axis, we then have these wonderful words called preferences. How many of you have a preference? In fact, just, just take a quick second. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait so you can do this. I'm going to give you about five seconds, six seconds. But turn to someone and give them your favorite dessert. Go ahead, give someone your favorite dessert. You got just a couple moments here. 
Yeah, for me, one of mine, just as you're talking, for me, it's, it's uh, this wonderful coconut cream pie that my wife makes. I mean, it is, it, it is heaven. Now, it'll also send me to heaven much sooner because of what it's made out of, but it's amazing. So what about you? What, share with someone. Okay. Now, here's the reality. In a room this size and with our online family joining us as well, we all have different preferences on all sorts of things. Friends, if we cannot agree on desserts, why do we think we're going to agree on all other preferences in life? We're not. Now, when it comes to preferences, we talk about it in two ways. We talk about our traditional the traditions and progress. Some people, when it comes to what we do, value the traditions more. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing at all. It simply means I prefer the old or I prefer the stable or I prefer what has been tried and true, the history, the, the ritual. I love that, right? And by the way, I do. We have family uh, Christmas stuff in the Diggs house that is tradition, tradition, tradition. I mean, it is a ton of it because we love it. But then there's others who prefer progress and just all that means is new. Some value new things. So I have a phone right here. My phone, it's not new. It's old. I want a new phone. I like progress. And for some of you, that's going to be you as well, right? Now, here's where I think we get confused. Sometimes we will confuse tradition with standing under the Word of God or progress with standing above the Word of God. But here's what is so fascinating. When you look at these different individuals, let's look at the Sadducees first. They removed things from Scripture that they did not like, right? So they would be people who said, we do not submit to the truth of Scripture. We are the ones who stand above it. And because they wanted status with Rome, they wanted to lean into their um, pagan culture. They wanted to identify and to be esteemed by, not change their culture, but be changed by their culture. They would be considered above Scripture. They changed Scripture according to their desires, and their desires were progress, right? Hey, we want to identify with Rome. We're not asking them to change and grow. We're just going to morph to be like them, not transformed in the image of God. So they were here because they said new is greater than the Bible. What is progress is more important than Scripture. Friends, we never, 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 never should be there. But then there's this other thing. A lot of times if we read this, we think, well, the, the Pharisees are under the Scripture, right? Because they are holding to the tradition. They are holding to the Word of God. In fact, they're adding additional rules because they love the Lord so much, right? And yet Jesus rebukes them because they are keeping their traditions as more sacred than keeping God's relationship with Him. And so because of the tradition, they are above Scripture, aren't they? They would be over here. They say that the old is more important or greater than the Scriptures. Here's what I want you to see. As Christ followers, our number one aim is to hold tightly to the authority of Scripture, that God is our boss, that the Scriptures are ours, that we have a posture when we enter reading the Scriptures. You're my boss, God, and I'm going to do whatever you say. And then lo hold loosely to progress or tradition. They're not good or bad. But anytime the new usurps authority or the new contradicts Scripture, we have to let it go to remain under God's authority. Whenever tradition, as good as it is, 
usurps authority or contradicts the truth of God's word, we have to let it go if we're to stay under the word of God. Here's what I want to suggest to you is that when you read the scriptures, friend, enter in with a heart that says, God, I want to be open to you. Transform me from the inside out. I love this or I love this or I love some things that are this and some things that are that. But Lord, I lay those at your feet. Teach me. For in you and in your word, I will find life. Now, here's the good news. You have two groups that walk away. But even someone who grew up in these kind of groups doesn't have to walk away because there's one man that if we had time, we'd dig into his story more. But there's, there's one man who was well-respected among the Pharisee group. He was well-known, well-loved, well-liked. But he began to ask questions and he began to seek the truth and so one night, as recorded in John chapter 3, this Pharisee who knew the words of God went to meet the word of God, Jesus himself. Nicodemus comes and he asks Jesus a series of questions. And you can tell that he's wrestling with it because it's unusual, it's weird, it's different. But he begins to think through it. And because he says, I'm coming with a heart of transformation, he really molds it over. And we know this because just a few chapters later, when the rest of the Pharisees and even the Sadducees are beginning to unite in their hatred of Jesus, it is Nicodemus who says, hey, maybe we shouldn't, maybe we shouldn't mess with him. And it was Nicodemus who, when Jesus died, joined another man named Joseph to take the body of Christ down, to wrap it and prepare it for burial. In other words, what he did secretly, seeking the word, understanding, he grew to transformative faith so that he publicly identified with Jesus Christ. And according to Christian tradition, what continued at the tomb did not stop for Nicodemus, but he became a leader and a proponent in the church, all because he entered the word and conversation with the word with the right heart, the right attitude, the right posture, saying, God, you transform me. So my prayer for you and me today, before we even open the word of God, is to talk to Jesus, the word, and say, Lord, help me to come not with a sense of obligation, I have to, or a sense of information, I just want more facts and figures, but nothing to do with my life, or affirmation saying I'm already right, or argumentation looking for ways to say someone else is wrong, or refutation to say that you're wrong, God, but give me a heart that is open to transformation. You understand this is how every relationship with Jesus actually begins. When you choose to say yes to Jesus and put him on in baptism, it is all about saying, I come under you. In fact, that's why we come under the water in baptism. It is a picture of our heart, of our posture that says, I submit all of me to all of you. Every part of my life comes under your authority from now until the day I see you face to face. So let's pray together. Father, we ask you today, give us hearts, postures of affirmation, not of ourselves, but of you, and that we would seek transformation, that we'd be open to whatever you should show us. I thank you for everyone here. May you bless them this week as they read your word. Give them eyes to see so that they can hear and experience the life that you call them into. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.